Good morning, everybody. Let's grab our Bibles this morning and turn to 2 Kings chapter 21. Second Kings 21 this morning. Uh, we're going to get started in verse 1, which says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hephzibah. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, after the abominations of the heathen, whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. So, we've talked about the pattern before of good kings and bad kings, and usually when we talk about that, we're talking about uh, Israel, uh, and not Judah. But it's coming to the point now where Judah is getting as bad as Israel was toward its end. You have a good king, a bad king, a good king, a bad king. Until you get to a point where they're just not going to have any more good kings. And that's when the Lord uh, sends, sent Assyria to conquer uh, Israel. Well, we see a new king taking over in Judah, whose name is Manasseh. And uh, as it said, Manasseh did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He followed the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out, which we'll talk about specifically which pe people groups that's talked about. Uh, but we are nearing the end. There are 25 chapters in 2 Kings. So after this week's lesson, we'll have four lessons left before we're done with the books of history. And so we're coming very close to the end of Israel's Old Testament history here. Uh, a lot of, uh, there's, you say, well, there's still a lot of books in the Old Testament past 2 Kings. And that is very true. However, it's not more story. It's not more history. First uh, and Second Chronicles is a retelling of uh, a different perspective of uh, everything from 1 Samuel to 2 Kings. And it goes through all of the history of Israel there in First and Second Chronicles. Through that, you have the books of poetry, which are not storytelling necessarily, except for the book of Job, uh, which is a very specific story about a specific person. And then beyond that, you have some post-exile uh, books, uh, which we have studied and talked about on our Wednesday Bible studies, uh, one of which we recently finished, which was uh, the book of uh, Ezra we just finished. We've talked a bit about the book of Nehemiah and uh, gone over that in some sermons and so forth, but those are uh, post-exile books as well as the book of Esther, which we have covered on our Wednesday night Bible study as well. Uh, and then beyond that, you have the prophets. And the prophets, I think of the prophets, and I think this is a good way to think of them, I think of the, prophet, the prophetic books, which are just as important as any book in the Bible. You have there are no books that are less or more important than the others. But the books of prophets serve as sort of like a commentary to what's going on during the books of history. Right? Like the last couple of weeks we talked about Isaiah, right? How he was sort of the messenger between God and the king. And then you can go and you can read the books of Isaiah and the stories of what was happening in his life during his time in ministry as a prophet. 
and knowing what happened during his time in life sort of helps those books take on more uh, character helps you read them and understand them a little better but they are sort of commentaries as to what's going on during this time through uh, first and second kings and into the uh, times of exile for example Daniel the book of Daniel we all know pretty well Daniel's a post-exile book he's writing that book from Babylon right he's dealing with King Nebuchadnezzar right for you guys who know the VeggieTale version, that's the big pickle who made him eat all the chocolate buns. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Nezer. Yeah, they call him Mr. Nezer because it sounds like Nebuchadnezzar. Right. Yeah. The one saying the chocolate buns. Yeah. Which they changed. Which I know has nothing to do with anything, but it used to say... Uh, I don't love my mom or my dad, just the bunny. Which is horrible, because it's supposed to be. Yeah, that's the point. It's the point of the song. It's supposed to be horrible. Like, I'm worshipping the bunny. Like, you worship, I don't know, an idol. A, a giant statue that King Nebuchadnezzar made, right? But they made him change it. Now it says, I don't love my soup or my bread, just the bunny. Like, the point is, oh, it's not healthy for you. It's like, that was so not the point. I don't like that. I don't like my kids hearing, I don't love my mom or my dad. I don't like that. And I'm like, yeah, that's the idea. Is that it's, it's almost it wasn't supposed to be, you know. Anyway. It's bad enough, you know, that my people know Nebuchadnezzar is the big pickle who made the kids eat chocolate bunnies. But now we got to change the bunny song. It's like, how much further are we going to go with this? Art song. <laughs> The arc song? Oh, I know. <laughs> See, now i got to talk. Now i got to explain that. There's a, there's a really happy, fun, joyous song we used to do Vacation Bible School to these CDs that they would send. Uh, for regular Baptist Press would send a whole packet, and this packet was a CD that would have, like, fun kids' church music, right? And uh, one of the songs on it was called Arky Arky. And you're like, oh, how fun and sweet. The Lord told Noah he's got to build an Arky Arky. And it's uh, awfully fun and awfully joyous for a natural disaster that killed the entire world's population of human beings. You know, they drowned to death, moms and babies, and now there's a body, body. You know, it's not. <laughs> it's not. It's not fun. It's not the one to pick. You don't do Arky Arky. That's not the fun story. It's like these people who paint murals of Noah's Ark in the nurseries of their kids. You know, you probably heard Tim Hawkins do that bit before, where he's like, uh, "What do you do?" Some you know, kid walks in. What are you doing, Daddy? Oh, I'm painting Noah's Ark. You know, on the the nursery wall. Here, paint, grab a brush and help me draw some screaming people on this rock here. You know, it's like, oh, get the red one. That's what the blood looks like. You know, it's. It would be like if somebody painted, you know, Hurricane uh, Katrina. Hurricane Katrina on a nursery wall. You're like, why would they do that? That's horrible. That's what Noah's flood was. Arky Arky just disturbs me. Yeah. It's it's a very happy song for a very tragic day in world history. Holy cow. But yeah. So those are all sort of post-exile books and goes through all of those sorts of things, uh, which we're coming very close to explaining here at the end of Second Kings. 
but today we're talking about another evil king which drives us further along the path to getting to uh, this exile we're going to go into detail about. The title of our lesson this morning is The Rampant Evil of Manasseh. The Rampant Evil of Manasseh. And we see firstly this morning is Manasseh's plague of wickedness. And verse 3 says, For he built up again the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. And he reared up altars for Baal, and made a grove as did Ahab king of Israel, and worshipped all the host of heaven, and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of the which the Lord said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven, in the two courts of the house of the Lord. That's the temple. And he made his son to pass through the fire and observed times and used enchantments and dealt with familiar spirits and wizards. He wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And he set, a gro uh, he set a graven image of the grove that he had made in the house, of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. Neither will I make the feet of Israel move any more out of the land which I gave their fathers, only if they will observe to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they hearkened not, and Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than did the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the children of Israel. So we see Manasseh's plague of wickedness. A few phrases I wanted to talk about this morning, and the first of which is where it says, uh, he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. This is a generic phrase. Uh, and it indicates Manasseh's decision to refuse the Lord, both in his kingdom as a king and in his personal life. Choosing to refuse the things of God. Uh, there were many ways uh, in this day that one might have done, quote, that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, because there were so many popular false religions and terrible rituals which you could choose from. These groves that we keep reading about, basically it was a group of trees, what a grove is obviously, but in these groves, they would go in and they would carve uh, either the symbol that somebody had invented of a false god, or they would carve the name of these false gods into the trees. And they would worship at these trees like you might worship at an altar. You know, they might have made sacrifices before these trees that had these names and symbols carved into them. There was somebody's job, whose job it was every day to go in and care for these groves, tend to these trees, keep them alive, make sure these symbols and names were visibly seen. Uh, there were false idols and statues that you could put anywhere you wanted them to because they came in various sizes. You could put them in the temple, you could put them in the palace, you could put them in people's homes. Uh, so there was all kinds of gods, there was different rituals you could partake in, uh, even of Egyptian rituals, which were quite popular in that day and time. 
So there were a lot of different ways you could choose to do that which was evil on the side of the Lord, and Manasseh chose all of them. He did all of them, which is amazing to me because literally one king before his dad, remember who he was? Hezekiah. Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the Bible says, did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, destroyed a lot of these groves, and worshipped the Lord. And we're going to talk about what happened from one generation to the next here in a minute. But the point is, it's no less true in our day that there are many ways we can choose to abandon the ways of the Lord. And it's these things aren't unpopular. You don't have to go out and become an atheist. You don't have to go out and openly defy God and shake your fist in the air and claim you hate God or you no longer believe in God. There's a lot of really easy, simple, um, overlooked ways we can abandon the ways of the Lord. You can come to church every Sunday. Uh, you can dress the part, you can talk the part, and still have completely abandoned the ways of God. Right? Because it's not about religion. And that's what we need to begin to understand. What we believe about the Lord Jesus Christ has nothing to do with religion. Right? You can do all the religious things. I'm a Christian, so I go to church. I own a Bible. Right? I partake in the Lord's Supper. I dress the part, I sound the part, all these sorts of things that are expected of me. But when it comes to having the Lord in your heart, having a relationship with the Lord in your heart, it can still not be there. Even though all these other religious things are there. You know, I've been baptized, I know the books of the Bible, all these things. And yet the Lord can still not have the preeminence in your heart. Because what we do and what we believe is more than just rituals and religion and practice. It's about your heart. And if it's not in your heart, you shouldn't be doing the rest of them. Right? The Bible says in the book of Revelation, he tells one of the seven churches in the book of Revelation, Be ye either hot or cold, but neither lukewarm. What is he saying there? He's telling that church... Either be hot and on fire and excited about my things, excited about me, my word, my church, or be cold. Stop coming to church. Stop reading your Bible. Stop praying. You say, why would God tell me to stop praying? Because you don't want to do it. You wake up and you make yourself pray because it's what we do, I guess. That's not the way you, God wants you coming to Him. He says, if that's going to be your attitude, I don't even want you to come at all. How would you like to invite somebody over to your house and they get there and they're in a bad mood the whole time? They're miserable. You keep checking their watch, sighing real big. Sitting there, just tapping their foot. Every time you say something to them, they kind of snap back at you. You'd say, why did you, why would, you might say, why did you even come at all if you didn't want to be here? That's God's attitude. We come because it's what we're supposed to do, but we don't really want to. God says, don't be here. If you don't want to be here, be, don't be here. Be cold. Because you can't miss God if you don't miss God. right? You're still seeing Him every Sunday. You're still hearing from Him every day, even though you don't want to. You're not going to be able to miss it. Right? You go out there in the world, in the darkness of the world, in the sin of the world, 
and you let that stuff pollute your soul for a while after a while, any Christian is going to get to the point where they say, you know what, I kind of miss going to church. I kind of miss, you know, maybe I open that Bible app up on my phone today. I kind of feel like it today. If you're cold, be cold. Because it's only then you can go from being lukewarm to being hot for God. There are many different ways we can abandon the ways of the Lord. It's not, it doesn't always come in the form of what we expect it to. Right? Oh, he, he got a friend that dragged him out of church. Or, oh, he got to talking to this other, about this other religion over there. and He converted from our religion to that one. It doesn't always look like that. It's uh, sometimes much, most of the time, almost always, as a matter of fact, it's been my experience that when people begin to lose their way of the Lord, it's much more subtle than that. It may not be a false god or a pagan ritual, but it can be greed that pulls a businessman from the altar of the Almighty God to the altar of the Almighty Dollar. It can be the lust that pulls a happily married man from his family and from his wife into pain and loneliness. That's not always what we expect. The devil is a subtle serpent. We talked about that on Wednesday night. We talked about serpents. And the most obvious one is the devil as a serpent in the Garden of Eden. And the Bible refers to him as subtle, the most subtle creature. That's the way he is with us, too. He doesn't come up in front of you showing you, sword drawn, ready for battle. He comes to you in the form of an ally. He comes to you in the form of a friend, a family member, somebody you let your guard down around, and then he strikes. That's the way a snake works, isn't it? They blend in with the grass or the leaves and tree branches on the ground. You don't really know they're there. And they don't move until you're not really paying attention. And they very slowly and very quietly move closer to their prey. If the prey notices them there, what do they do? They stop moving. They blend in with the ground. They wait till they're not paying attention. They let their guard down. And then they move in closer. Until they get so close, they can strike. And once the snake strikes at its prey, it's pretty much over. That's why the Bible tells us to be sober, to be vigilant. Sober doesn't just mean don't get drunk. That's not necessarily what that phrase means. Uh, it's about sobriety. It's about uh, being sober-minded, you know, being uh, aware, you know, being con con uh, conscious, there we go, of the spiritual warfare all around us and how the devil is coming after us and we need sort of spiritual sobriety. We need spiritual vigilance so that the serpent cannot slither its way upon us, its prey. Because when it happened to Manasseh, he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. But then it goes into detail about the evil that he did. Right? It says he built up again the high places. But it doesn't just say that, does it? It says he built up again the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. And it specifically mentions this, and I believe that God put this in the Bible for a reason. 
And I believe that God specifically mentions His Father because He's doing this out of defiance of His Father. And I, I'll tell you why. Anybody remember from a couple of weeks ago our lesson in 2 Kings 20? Let me refresh your mind. In 2 Kings 20 and verse 17, Isaiah is saying to Hezekiah, Behold, the days come that all that is in thine house and that which thy fathers have laid up in store unto this day shall be carried into Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of King Babylon. How would you respond to that message? You'd be bothered. Lord, I hope you'd be bothered. Hezekiah said unto Isaiah, Good is the word of the Lord which thou hast spoken. He says, Your kids, your grandkids, maybe even your great-grandkids will be carried off into Babylon all of these possessions will belong to the king of Babylon and they're going to uh, turn them into eunuchs. In other words, really tough surgery to make sure that they can't produce little heirs. That they're going to make sure that the bloodline dies off then and there of the kings. But not by killing them. And Hezekiah's response to this horrific and bloody message is, Oh, good. So what you're saying is, none of that stuff's going to happen to me. Good. Isn't it good if peace and happiness are in my day? Because in his mind, he was the only one that mattered. Now, how would you feel if you were Manasseh? Hezekiah's son, the next heir to the throne. And your dad does not care if you're dragged out of your home and um, have some equipment cut off. He doesn't care. I imagine there'd be some resentment. The neglect that Manasseh felt toward his father led to a complete rejection of everything his father stood for, including his father's God. It is vitally important. Understand this. Listen to this. It is vitally important that a father spend time with his children. Because number one, those kids need to see your love for them. Your kids need to know that you love them. Not just because you say it, which you should, but because they experience it. And secondly, your kids need to see your love for God. Because if you don't share that with them, you greatly limit their ability to inherit it. It is a man's job to raise his children in the ways of the Lord. 
to be there as their father, to take care of them, yes, to provide for them, yes, but to love them and to spend time with them and to do the right thing for them. And yes, sometimes being a dad can seem scary and it can seem difficult and it can seem hard and lonely, but it is the job. And a real man does that job. He doesn't take off on his kids. He doesn't leave because he's feeling unappreciated. A man stays and stays a father and stays a husband. 1 Corinthians 16.13 says, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. There, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church and specifically the men of the Corinthian church. He's saying, be a man. I'm sure that's a very uh, politically incorrect phrase nowadays, be a man. Because some people mistakenly think that what we're saying is be strong. Because only men are strong. And that's not what we're saying. Women are just as strong as men, at times stronger. I've watched the miracle of birth. I'm pretty sure I couldn't do what Amanda did. She's got a strength I don't have. God's given her that. What we mean when we say, be a man, is that there are things that men should be. Just like there are things that women should be. The Bible defines manhood in a certain way. A father shouldn't abandon his kids. It's part of being a man. Just like a mother shouldn't abandon her children. That's part of being a woman. But a man's job is slightly different than a woman's job. For more details, see Genesis chapter 3. So be a man means do the job God gave you to do. And that's all it means. There's no superiority to it. There's no put-downs. It's just a specific role that God has given us. But then also notice, after he's, he's done all these things in defiance of his dad, in defiance of the Lord, he's mad and he's angry about his childhood, he's doing every single ritual, right? We said that before. Every single ritual that could be done in that part of the world in that day and time. Everything that's anti-God. And you'll read, a, you, we've read a familiar phrase, right? He made his son to pass through the fire. Anybody know what this is in reference to? We've mentioned it a few times before. When they actually put their babies in the fire, did they survive? The fire of Molech. This is a false god they worship called Molech. And the ritual was, or was at some point in their history, that the firstborn or the firstborn son, was meant to be placed uh, on almost like a, a man-made conveyor belt. In the middle of this belt, they had built up a roaring fire with flames reaching very far past it. And the baby was meant to go into the fire, alive and awake, through the fire, onto the other side. And if it lived, it was blessed by Molech. Manasseh, it says, made his son pass through the fire. Manasseh participated in the rituals of Molech. How 
how horrible, cruel, and tragic that Manasseh's hatred for his own father would lead him to hurt his own children. They say that physical abuse of this nature is a cycle. That when a father abuses his children, a cycle has begun. And that child will grow up with a kind of uncontrollable anger that he inadvertently begins to take out on his children as well, not realizing he's continuing a vicious cycle. But at what point does the cycle break? At what point do we have hope that that abuse stops? Our hope is in the Lord. Our hope is that a father learns that the way his dad did him was not right. But that he has a heavenly father that loved him and cared for him and never wanted to hurt him. That died on a cross so that he wouldn't have to experience that terrible place called hell. That is the real love. And once they experience the real love that only God can provide, that is the hope of breaking the cycle and choosing love over hate and anger. Abuse, however, comes in many different forms. It's not always physical. Abuse can be mental. Abuse can be verbal. We uh, read in James where he talks about the tongue. He describes it as a wild animal and how we've tamed every beast of the field. Wild horses, massive creatures you can go and look at in the zoo, like lions, like elephants, rhinoceros, hippos. We've tamed every wild beast there is. And the only wild beast we've yet to tame is the tongue and the mother-in-law. But other than that, <laughs> The Bible says that the tongue, like the mother-in-law, is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. You throw something at me? Oh, she might? Yeah, I'm used to it. Mother-in-law. How much damage our tongue can do. You've heard people say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. It's a lie. It's a good one. We wish it to be true. We want it more than anything to be true. But the one thing that can cause more damage than any nuclear weapon on the planet is the tongue. Wars are started and ended with the tongue. People are permanently injured by the tongue. Be careful that what we spread out into the world is love and hope and joy. Let's not continue a cycle of violence. We should be the light in the darkness. Let's stop the cycle of pain. But notice also he begins to make reference to, did you read that about David and Solomon? He's referring to the covenant he made with those two men about the temple, about how that's where I'm going to put my name. 
and Judah. Jesus was referred to as the lion of the of the tribe of anybody? Judah. Judah. The lion of the tribe of Judah, because that's where Jesus was to come from, was from Judah. The Lord chose Judah over all the other tribes to be the one through which he would do his work of salvation. He would place his name there. He made a covenant with them. He would be with them. He would protect them. A covenant and promise which was passed down from generation to generation if they would only obey his commands. The punishment that God uses upon those that call him Lord but refuse to obey him often enough is that he gives them what they want. Because what they wanted, what Manasseh wanted, was no God. I don't want God anywhere near me. And their punishment was that that is exactly what they got. So many times if God wants to punish us, that's all he has to do is give us what we wanted. Uh, my dad gave me and my brother a saying growing up that his father gave him. Be careful what you chase, because you just might catch it. Wise words from a man who had been around the block a time or two, and had seen what happens to people who pursue things that maybe aren't so good for them. Be careful what you chase, because you just might catch it. When God doesn't answer our prayers, as hard as it is for us to understand, it's because we're chasing something we're better off without. So many people say, I prayed to the Lord to give me a million dollars and he didn't answer my prayer. Well, he's not a magic genie. You don't get three wishes. You know, he's not a fairy godmother, fairy godfather. You don't get to just... Uh, Get your magic pumpkin turned into a beautiful carriage. He's a heavenly father. He's a parent. An almighty, all-powerful parent. Which is why I think sometimes we get frustrated with them. Because kids get frustrated with their parents because their parents are right. And it's very annoying. Just once... You know, I know you're not looking at me, but just once I'd like to be right about something. <laughs> I'm 32 years old. I'll be 33 in December. I'd like to be right one time with this guy, you know? Yeah, trust me. <laughs> I think that's why we get so frustrated with God. He's always right. And we would like just one time for the thing we want to be good for us. Would it really be so bad for me to have all this money? Yeah, it really would. The love of money is the root of all evil. And they say, oh yes, but Brother Matthew, the love of money, not money. Well, the more money you have, the easier it is to love. It takes a very strong-willed Christian to keep the Lord above a million dollars. I'm not saying it's impossible. There were many people throughout Scripture and alive today that put the Lord above their money even though they're millionaires and sometimes billionaires. But it takes a very strong will to do so. Well, 
Isn't God answering my prayer of getting a brand new Ferrari? Isn't that really, is that so bad for me to get? Yeah, it might be. I know for some of us who have watched far too many James Bond movies, super fast car might not be so good for me. I might think I can do some of those tricks that they CGI into the movie. And then when that thing's wrapped around a telephone pole, I can be like, oh, that doesn't work in the real world. What you want might not be what's good for you. And unlike a genie or a fairy godmother, God being a father, a lot like a father, when the kids come in and they say, Dad, I want some cookies. I want, I want one of those sweet cakes in the, in the, the pantry. They say, dinner's going to be ready in about 20 minutes. And they say, I don't want dinner. I want that. What is mom or dad going to say? No. Go back in the room and play. I'll let you know when dinner's ready. Dinner's good for you. There's meat, vegetables. There's all kinds of good stuff in there for you. Well, they don't want that. They want the cookies and they want the cakes. But a good mom and a good dad make sure they get a good, hearty, healthy meal. That's the way the Lord is with us. We come up to the Lord and we say, Lord, I want these things. And he says, no, what you need will be ready in a little bit. You just be patient. We say, I don't want to be patient. And I don't want that. I want this. But a good heavenly father sometimes doesn't answer our prayers. He sometimes gives us what we need because what we want is going to hurt us. Then we see secondly, but aren't you glad there's only two points in our lesson this morning? The Lord's declaration of judgment in verse 10. It said, And the Lord spake by his servants, the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, hath done these abominations, and hath done wickedly above all that the Amorites did, which were before him, and hath made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore thus saith the Lord, God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such evil upon Jerusalem and Judah that whosoever heareth of it, both his ears shall tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plumet of the, of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as a man wipeth a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of mine inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies. And they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done that which was evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came forth out of Egypt into this day. Uh, verse 16, Moreover, Manasseh shed innocent blood very much till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another beside his sin wherewith he made Judah to sin in doing that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and his sin that he sinned, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his own house in the garden of Uzzah. And, Am, uh, and Ammon, his son, reigned in his stead. Very little written about Ammon. You can read that from verse 19 on through the rest of the chapter. 
but we are focusing on Manasseh this week, and next week we'll be in chapter 22 with Josiah. And Josiah is one of the big ones. He's one of the important stories we have to touch on before we move on. Uh, but we've seen here the Lord's declaration of judgment. And a couple of things I wanted to touch on really quick before we're done. Number one, he said, I am bringing such evil upon Jerusalem and Judah that whosoever heareth of it, both his ears shall tingle. Now, I don't even know what that means, but I'm already scared of it. Right? I'm not even the one having it done to me. It was already done thousands of years ago to people I'm not related to. But just hearing God say that, that scares me a little bit. right? I don't even know what the, your ears shall tingle is supposed to mean, but I don't like it. Do you imagine what I'm going to do to you? Like when somebody threatens you, you kind of gauge it depending on the person. You know, if you've got like a four foot nothing guy weighing six pounds in front of you, you're probably not going to take his threat real seriously, you know. Uh, but if you got a real big, tall, huge, big, muscular guy in front of you, he didn't have to say much to intimidate you, right? Like, back off. That's pretty much it. I'm, I'm backing off right away. I'm good. You know, defensive lineman for the Dallas Cowboys or something, and he said, back off. And I'm like, yes, sir. Yep. Mm -hmm. Six feet away. Is that good? I'm, sir? Yep. Okay. When it's God, I mean, there's not much more intimidating a being in all the universe to take a threat from. And God says he's going to bring such evil upon Jerusalem and Judah that whosoever heareth of it, both his ears shall tingle. Now when he says evil here, he doesn't mean evil in the sense of uh, sinfulness or you know doing something that's bad. He means something destructive, right? Something painful. Uh, that kind of evil, like evil times. Times of war and hardship and so forth. Uh, so that's what he means. But there's no doubt that God has been more than patient with Judah, right? He's put up with a lot from these people. So then why has God now decided to bring down the hammer of judgment upon them? Did he finally run out of patience? No. Don't think for an instant God's run out of patience. Rather, this is God giving them what they wanted. This isn't God running out of patience. It's giving them what they asked for. A life without God in it. So that they can see their mistakes, repent, and plead to come back to God. But remember that God's long-suffering toward us is without end. Right? God never gets tired and done with it. He never gives up on us. Never. He didn't give up on them. What happened was, this is what they asked for. This is what they've been asking for for years and years and years. And every once in a while, a good king will come along and they'll ask for something different. And God is patient so that that good king coming up down the line can have his turn and do that which is right inside of the Lord. But what happens when there comes a day and age there's no longer going to be another good king? That they can continue that bloodline for an eternity and there will never be one that does right inside of the Lord. They continuously ask for God to leave them. He does so. That is what happened. No hammer. No lack of patience. 
just quite simply God answering the prayers of Israel and giving them what they wanted. Then he also says, I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plumet of the house of Ahab. A plumet, or as it's otherwise called in the Bible, a plumb line, is an instrument used by carpenters and masons which consists of a piece of lead fastened to a line, like a rope or a string. And it's used to make sure that the structure being built is straight. Right? What happens if you go to build a brick wall and it's crooked? Right? Do you just go, oh, it's, it's probably good enough. We'll just go ahead and finish the house. Probably not. Why? What will happen to the house? It'll, yeah, it'll, it'll fall over is what it'll do. If it's like leaning one direction or the other to the side or to the other side, if it's not straight, the integrity of that wall is not going to keep and it's going to fall apart. It has to be straight. So before they had lasers and all this uh, technology that we have today to make sure that things are being built straight, what did they use? They used a plumb line. They take a piece of lead, tie it to a string, and they would hold it straight down through one of the holes of the bricks and make sure that it was straight because if the lead hit one of the sides of the, the wall, one of the sides of the brick, they knew that it wasn't straight. That thing should be able to go all the way down. And that was how they knew whether or not it was being built properly, is by the plumb line. That's what God is saying here. He's saying that as Israel has grown, they have not grown straight. They have not been properly grown spiritually. And the plumb line that I have used gauges it to be so. It's the same plumb line I used on Samaria. And he says it's the same plumb line I used on Ahab. And neither of them came out right either. And I use it on Judah now, and they are not straight as they ought to be according to my plumb line. What is the plumb line or the plumet? Amos chapter 7 and verse 7, Amos was a prophet in the Old Testament days. He said, thus he showed me and thus behold the Lord stood upon a wall made by a plumb line with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, a plumb line. Then said the Lord, behold, I will set a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not again pass by them anymore. And the high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. The plumb line that they failed to be measured up to is the word of God. And it showed that Judah's spiritual growth was not straight and sturdy as it ought to have been. So they must start over. Destroy them so they can begin at square one again. And he must wipe them clean as a man wipeth a dish. We just read that too, right? He's wiping the slate clean, in other words. Sometimes God's got to start them over. Because starting at the very beginning is the only way they can learn to come back to the Lord. And they did. For more details on their return to God, go check out our series on the book of Ezra. Rebuilding the house of God. And they came back to Israel after years of captivity and they rebuilt 
the house of the Lord and came back to the God that they had once abandoned. But that is our lesson for this morning. I want to thank everybody for being here. Thank you guys on Facebook. We will be back at 11 o'clock-ish, maybe a few minutes later.